have your Bibles today, I'd like you to turn, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to be looking today at three of the most convicting verses in the Bible. And one of the reasons they're so convicting is that they're easy to understand. They say what God wants to say. They use words like always and every circumstance and continually. These are commands. And yet these are things that so often we find ourselves in the midst of all of our troubles and all of our worries and all the things that are happening in the world. We find ourselves struggling to do these very things. And yet God said, this is what you are to do. This is my will for you in Christ Jesus. Paul was writing this to a church that themselves were going through a lot of difficult times. Real persecution. Remember, this is a church that when Paul founded it, he was there a very short time. And he was chased out of town by the Jews who were not happy with what he was preaching. Well, that persecution didn't stop. It continued. The church there was suffering it as he wrote. In fact, in some of the places we even see about him talking about those who have died in this effort. And yet to such a people, to such a church, going through such a time, he writes this in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, these are simple words clearly stated. And yet we find ourselves at times struggling to really live this out. In fact, without your help, we can't. As we come to this week where we focus on thanksgiving to God, may you help us to understand how in everything we too can give thanks. For this is the will of God for us in Christ Jesus. There's so much that could be said here, but I pray today you'll say what you want, and we'll thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, at 20,320 feet, Mount McKinley, now called Mount Denali in Alaska, is North America's highest peak. It's the focal point of Alaska's Denali National Park, but it has also been called one of the most dangerous mountains in the world. Nearly every month, somebody dies trying to scale the peaks of Mount McKinley, Denali. But in 1992, I read in an article that that death rate had peaked at an all-time high. 11 people had died that year. When I was reading an article about it, I was reading about a rescue, a daring rescue of three Korean climbers were caught in a blizzard on that peak. It said they had climbed up with average climbing ability, but it wasn't because of ineptitude that they got in trouble. It was because of this raging blizzard that they had been warned about. They were stranded in a snow cave at 17,700 feet. Two of them were severely frostbitten. All three were very weak because they had gone now five days without food. They had radio capability to send a word down, but their elevation was the absolute limit where a park helicopter could even hope to try to reach them. The people at the camp down below waited as long as they could, and when the storm cleared, 
They put pilot Bill Ramsey and a ranger named Jim Phillips into a small park helicopter and they flew up in the midst of howling winds to try to save these three climbers. It said that they lifted them off in an impressive a bit of flying one at a time. And when they went back to get the third climber, a man by the name of Bong Q. Chung, he tried to slip their backpacks onto the rungs of the bottom of the helicopter and the park ranger reached out and pushed them off, saying to them, we can't take those. We can barely get out. Every ounce is putting us in a greater danger. They got Chung in the helicopter and they got him down. It said in this article that once the helicopter touched down by the medical tent, the rescuers would have well expected tears of gratitude, but instead, Chung went ballistic. This is what he said. He started yelling, what about my backpack? What about my equipment? I want my money. I want my passport. You must go up in the helicopter and get them right now. The ranger and the pilot said, we told the guy, look, it was a dangerous rescue. You're here, you're safe, that's all that matters. We're not flying back up there in these conditions to retrieve your pack. If you want it, you're going to have to climb back up yourself and get it. And the ranger said, amazing. He just got even more belligerent. He didn't even so much as thank us for saving his life. You know, when I read that, I thought, amazing, isn't it? His life was just dramatically saved at the risked lives of others. And instead of being grateful, he's hateful. There is no character trait of self-worship that's more ugly than a life of ingratitude. Ingratitude is usually a sign of a person who is very self-focused rather than other-minded. A person who's focused on getting more than they are giving. Having a sense of superiority or entitlement rather than that of humility, appreciation, or service. It's usually a person who takes people and things for granted and they live with an air of expectation. No one is easier to take for granted or treat with an air of entitlement or expectation than God himself. And that's one of the reasons it is God's will that in everything we give thanks. Paul wrote to them, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. As I mentioned, it's significant that this command is given to the church at Thessalonica. You remember it was a church founded by Paul on his second missionary journey. Now imagine this. Paul comes in, he starts a new church. There are Jewish and Gentile believers there, but predominantly Jewish. And he's preaching them the good news of Jesus. A number of them come to Christ and a church is formed. But because of opposition, the Jews chase him out of town after about three weeks. I can't help but wonder today, what would a church in America be like if a guy went in as a missionary into a community that had never heard the gospel preached it, people came to Jesus, he spent three weeks teaching them, was chased out of town. What's going to happen to that church with no pastor, under persecution, with only three weeks of even knowing who God is? You can imagine 
how concerned Paul was. And so when he gets word later from Timothy, who went back to see how they were doing, Paul is overjoyed. And he writes this letter to them, commending them for their faith and giving them more instruction. How were they doing? Look what he wrote in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 2. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has become known everywhere. So what were his instructions? What does he tell a church like this? Well, if you read through the book of 1 Thessalonians, among other things, he tells them this. Keep waiting for Jesus because he's coming again. Keep receiving God's word for what it is, not the word of man. It is the very word of God. Keep in mind that persecution and hardships are going to come, and all of us who live for Jesus have to stay strong in his grace and keep spreading the gospel. Let your love for God and each other increase and overflow, he said. Live to please Jesus, not in immorality and selfishness, but in holiness and in truth. And live ready for the Lord's return and encouraging one another. And then, among his final words, he tells them this. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. In the midst of hardships and trials, blessings and burdens, financial reversals, disappointments, lost loved ones, disappointing elections, loneliness, rejection, persecutions, in everything, in all circumstances, give thanks. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You know, so often I've gotten down and just begged God, Lord, show me your will in something and I will do it. He says, really? All right. It's my will that you rejoice always. It is my will that you pray continually. It is my will that you give thanks in every circumstance. That's my will for you. It is God's will that we give thanks to God in all things. So the question is, how do we do it? What reason do we have to actually do that without sounding like some Pollyanna person who just doesn't even acknowledge the realities of the hardships we all face? What reason does a Christian have to give thanks in everything that God would command it as his will? Well, Paul tells them we give thanks in all things because of who God is. And we give thanks in all things because of what God has done. Paul's teaching over these three weeks 
were taken out of the Old Testament. And I want you to go back with me, if you would, to one of the great Psalms of the Old Testament, Psalm 100. And if you have your Bible there, go back, because there's five verses. There's many things in the Old Testament that Paul drew on that talk about gratitude and praise to God. But there is no psalm like Psalm 100 that was given specifically for the purpose of offering grateful praise. And this is what the writer wrote. Could have been David. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Psalm 100, written possibly by David, was written for the express purpose of giving grateful praise to God, simply for who he is. That's why the writer said in verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. These were the songs of the worship life of Israel. These were the songs that people sang as they came up to the temple courts. So the writer is telling them, when you come into the presence, his presence, through the gates of the temple, and when you enter the courts of his gathering place, be sure to come in with joy. Come in to give him thanks. Come in to offer grateful praise. Even if in those moments things are hard, confusing, disappointing, overwhelming, you come into his presence different. You come into his presence with joy. You come into his presence with grateful praise. And why can you do this? Because no matter what's happening in your life, you're coming to the God who is. And you're coming to give grateful praise simply for who he is, apart from everything else that may be happening. That's why he said in verse 3 of Psalm 100, know that the Lord is God. That he is sovereign. That he is good. He's the king and he's the creator. In fact, in verse 5, in verses 4 and 5, he tells them we come into praise because he is good. Because his love endures forever. Because his faithfulness continues to all generations. You know, when I was meditating on this over the last couple of days, it's like God was asking me, Larry, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that I am good? Do you really believe that my love endures forever? Do you really believe I am faithful to all generations? Because have you ever stopped to think of what things would be like if he wasn't all those things? The psalmist said, we give th praise and thanks to God for the Lord is good. But what if he wasn't good? What if God was evil? There wouldn't be anything you could do about it. You would know then that every day the pain and the hurt and the heartache you suffer from living in a fallen world would be meaningless. Because it wouldn't be working for any good purpose. 
It would be pain for pain's sake if God isn't good. But God is good. In fact, he's good all the time. He's good in everything. And he uses all the circumstances of our lives, all the effects of living in a fallen, sinful world, all the good and even all the evil that happens to accomplish a purpose greater than we can now see for his glory and our good. That's why Paul wrote those famous lines in Romans 8, verse 28. You've heard them before. And we know, do we? And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Well, what is his purpose? For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those who called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. He also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. That's why James, the Lord's brother, would write in James 1, verse 2, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. People, I don't look like Jesus, not remotely, but someday I will. I'm going to think like him. I'm going to speak like him. I'm going to love like him. I'm going to be like him. And God's glory is going to be magnified in my life when God gets done with me. But he's got a lot of work to do until I start looking like Jesus. People don't start looking more like Jesus simply from laying out on the beach at Club Med with everything fine. God fashions and shapes us into Christ's image through the things that we suffer. What helps is to know that God is good. The question is, do we really believe it? Do we really believe it? Because how we respond in the midst of trials is an indicator of how in that moment we are perceiving God. That God is good and that he's working things for our good if we love him and are called according to his purpose. That we understand he's using the things we hate, the things we don't like, the things we try to avoid, the things that cause us pain. He's using those things to transform us into the likeness and glory of his son. That's why Paul wrote in Romans 8, verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings aren't worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. Doesn't mean it isn't fun. Doesn't mean we like it. But we can give thanks in it because we know that a good God is using it for a good purpose. 
And when you give thanks to God in all circumstances, you are acknowledging that. You believe it. The psalmist also said his love endures forever. Well, what if God's love didn't endure forever? What if he was selfish and uncaring and did nothing to help us? What if he chose not to love? We wouldn't be able to do anything about it. What if when we mess up, and we all do, we still sin, what if God said, I'm done? I'm done. You're too hard to love. I'm done with you. But he doesn't do any of those things. He is love. And his love endures forever. You know, God loves us and others so much that he's willing to put us through things that we would never choose because we don't love enough. God loves us and others so much that he's willing to put us through things we would never choose because we don't love enough. We don't love enough to do what is needed to grow people into the likeness of Jesus. In fact, we do everything we can to relieve people from that process. Oswald Chambers, in his devotional book, My Utmost for His Highest, once wrote this. One of our severest lessons comes from the stubborn refusal to see that we must not interfere in other people's lives. It takes a long time to realize the danger of being an amateur providence that is interfering with God's order for others. You see a certain person suffering and you say, he shall not suffer and I will see that he does not. And you put your hand straight in front of God's permissive will and try to prevent it. Now, it doesn't mean we don't try to help people who are hurting. Of course we do. We pray for them. We come alongside. We do what we can. But we cannot, nor are we supposed to try to lift every ounce of trial or suffering from a person's life. Because God is using it. Sometimes it comes because of sins we've committed, and it's a consequence. Sometimes it simply comes because we live in a fallen world. Sometimes it simply comes because a good God is working something good and he has to use those things to do it. Sometimes we think we have to stop what God is doing, but God doesn't. He loves us enough to do what it takes to make us like Jesus. People, God's love is not a pampering love. Ours is often a pampering love. That's how we see it. If God were loving, he would do this. God's love is not a pampering love. God's love is a perfecting love. And we can thank God that it is. You see, his love endures forever. So when you go through the tough times and difficulties, when we fail and sin, God disciplines us. Because he loves us. Remember in Hebrews 12, God disciplines those he loves. And we should thank him for it. We have been made by the love of God more than conquerors over these things that come into our lives that are so hurtful and painful. That's why Paul reminded in Romans 8, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? By the way, the apostle had experienced all of those things. It's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because his love endures forever. So when you give thanks in all circumstances, you are acknowledging that you believe he is a God of love and that he is loving you even in the midst of those painful moments. But the Bible also says in Psalm 100 that he is faithful and it continues, his faithfulness continues to all generations. Well, what if he wasn't faithful? What if he wasn't faithful to himself? What if he wasn't faithful to his word? What if he wasn't faithful to us? What if he was constantly changing? Up one day, down the next day, saying this one day, something different the next day, back and forth, one day this way, another day different tomorrow. What if God was like that? What if God was more like us instead of us becoming more like him? People, if God was like that, you'd never know what to believe. You'd never know who to believe. You'd never know what you could trust. But God is faithful. He's faithful to himself. He's faithful to his word. He's faithful to us, to all generations. That's why Paul told Timothy, you can always count on God's faithfulness no matter what. 2 Timothy 2, verse 11. Here's a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, I don't want you anymore, I don't believe in you, I don't want you, he'll he'll disown us. But if we're faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot disown himself. God is faithful to all generations because he is faithful. He can't be anything less than that. We may have times of unfaithfulness, but God never will. He cannot disown or deny himself. He cannot be anything but who he is, faithful to himself, to his word, and to us for all generations. And when we give thanks in all circumstances, we are acknowledging that we believe this. So when we're going through the trials, it isn't a Pollyanna response that we make. It's, God, I don't like this. It hurts. I would never choose it. I wish it would go away. I pray that you will lift it. Give me strength all through it. But I give you thanks for it because I know who you are now. And I know what you're up to. I know you're a God who is good. And you're going to use this for good purpose. I know that you're a God who is loving. And you are loving me. And I know that you are faithful to everything you are and everything you've said, so I can trust you. I give you thanks in every circumstance because of who you are. And not just because 
of who God is, but we give thanks in all circumstances because of what God has done. If you look at another section where Paul draws on Old Testament teaching in Romans 5, beginning in verse 1, listen to these words. Therefore, since Jesus was delivered over to death for us, he said, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. That's me. That's you. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Praising God, giving thanks in all things because of what he's done. Sometimes we fail to give thanks because we really don't understand or actually realize what we have been given. I remember reading a piece by Toni Moore in Reader's Digest some years ago about attending a wedding with her husband. They went to this wedding of an acquaintance's son. They didn't really know the bride. They didn't really know the groom, but they were invited because it was an acquaintance of theirs. It was their kids getting married. So she said, we decided to send them a practical household gift. We, we bought them a fire extinguisher. Apparently, the couple, she said, mass-produced their thank you notes because we received a card saying, thank you very much for the nice wedding gift. We look forward to using it soon. <laughs> I doubt it. You see, we might be using the right words without really understanding what we've been given. But when we do know what we've been given, our thanksgiving can change. It can come from the heart. It can touch the heart of God. And it can change you. One of the most powerful stories I ever read was of a man named Francis Jack Gezanajek. He is a Polish Jew. I have a hard time pronouncing his name. I've tried and practiced it, and I still can't get it right. But you get the point. I read his story in a book by Max Lucado, and Max Lucado had adapted it from a story of A Man for Others written by Patricia Truce. It was the story of what happened one day in a concentration camp in Germany at the start of World War II in 1941. I can't say it as well as Lucado wrote it, so I'm just going to read this to you. But I want you to listen 
the how Francisjek Kazjanizek lived his life in Thanksgiving because of what happened to him in that concentration camp. It's difficult to find beauty in death. It's even more difficult to find beauty in a death camp, especially Auschwitz. Four million Jews died there in World War II. Four million. A half ton of human hair is still preserved. The showers that sprayed poison gas still stand. But for all the ugly memories of Auschwitz, there is one of beauty. It's the memory that Gajanizek has of a Franciscan priest named Maximilian Kolb. It was February of 1941. Kolb was incarcerated at Auschwitz. He was a Franciscan priest. In the harshness of the slaughterhouse, he maintained the gentleness of Christ. He shared his food. He gave up his bunk. He prayed for his captors. He was soon given the nickname the Saint of Auschwitz. In July of that same year, there was an escape from the prison. It was the custom at Auschwitz to kill 10 prisoners for every one that escaped. All the prisoners would be gathered in the courtyard, and the commandant would randomly select 10 names from the roll book. These victims would be immediately taken to a cell where they would be locked away, receiving no attention, no food, no water, until they died of starvation and thirst. The commandant began calling out the names. At each selection, another prisoner stepped forward to fill the sinister quota. The tenth name belonged to Francis Jack Gajanizek. As the SS officers were checking the numbers off the condemned one by one, Gajanizek began to sob. My wife and my children, he said. The officers turn as they hear movement among the prisoners. The guards raise their rifles. The dogs are tense, anticipating a command to attack. But a prisoner has left his row and is pushing his way to the front. It is Father Kolb. No fear on his face. No hesitancy in his step. The commander shouts at him to stop or be shot. I want to talk to the commander, he says calmly. For some reason, the officer doesn't club or kill him. And Kolb stops a few paces from the commandant, removes his hat, and looks the German officer right square in the eye. And he says to him, Herr Commandant, I wish to make a request, please. That no one shot him is a miracle. I want to die in the place of this prisoner, pointing to Gajanizek. The audacious request is presented without stammer or fear. I have no wife. I have no children. Besides, I'm old and not good for anything. He's in better condition because Kolb knew well the Nazi mentality. Who are you? The officer asked him, a Catholic priest. The block is stunned. The commandant can't speak a word. He is speechless. After a moment, he barks, request granted. Prisoners were never allowed to speak. 
Gajanasek said, I could only thank him with my eyes. I was stunned. I could hardly grasp what was going on, the immensity of it. I, the condemned, am to live, and someone else willingly and voluntarily offers his life for me, a stranger. Is this some dream? The saint of Auschwitz outlived the other nine incarcerated with him that day. In fact, he didn't die of thirst or starvation. He died only after the camp doctor injected phenol into his heart. It was August 14, 1941. Gajanazek survived the Holocaust. He made his way back to his hometown. But every year, on August 14th, for the rest of his life, he went back to the prison camp to that very spot to give thanks for the man who gave his life to save him. Jesus once told the disciples in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Paul told the Romans, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul told the Romans in chapter 5, look what God has done. All the reasons you have to give thanks to him in every circumstance. People, I can't even take time today to name them all. Listen to just a few. You've been justified through faith. You've been declared righteous. We have peace with God. We've gained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. He said in verse 3, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that the suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And this hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. People, how is this possible? How is it possible that we could have all of that and so much more? We weren't God's friends. I was his enemy. If you'd have heard how I used his name, you'd wonder why God would even give me the time of day. I didn't know him at all. I was separated because of my sin. In fact, we're all lost in sin. And we're living in spiritual death. And we're powerless to do anything about it, even if we want to. But we don't want to. We were powerless, Paul said, but God wasn't powerless. We couldn't do anything, but God could. And he did. In fact, he demonstrated, Paul said, what his love not only could do, he was to demonstrate what his love would do. Verse 6, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. 
there are the Maximilian Coves in the world. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He laid down his life for me. I'm not here today to air out my sins, but Jesus took every one of my sins on himself. He took my death upon himself. And he willingly, voluntarily, obediently took my sin and death with him to the cross. And he took yours too. The fact that I can stand here today and say that I know God has come at a price more horrendous than I could ever describe. But we're about to remember it at the table of communion, which interestingly is called the Eucharist, which means the giving of thanks. If God never did another thing, never spoke another word, never answered another prayer, never gave another breath blessing, what he has already done would be and will be enough to thank and praise him forever and ever and ever. No wonder Paul told the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And when a Christian does the will of God by giving thanks in all circumstances, they're acknowledging that what they already have from God is greater than anything else that God could ever do. This is why it's God's will that we rejoice evermore. This is why it's God's will that we pray continually. And this is why it's God's will that we give thanks in all circumstances, no matter what. It isn't that God doesn't feel our pain. He suffered more than you and I ever will. In fact, I had a man ask me once, how much suffering will God put me through? I said, I don't know, but it will never be more than the cross. It doesn't mean we like all this stuff and sometimes we find ourselves responding in a way that isn't the will of God. And I need God's help in those moments that I can respond more and more and more the way he's asking me to. Demonstrating I really believe it. There's a story that I read from time to time to remind me of how the two devils of anger and self-pity can perch themselves on my shoulder when I think I'm getting a raw deal. And those two devils steal gratitude and praise. Max Lucado wrote about it in a book called Six Hours, One Friday. Here's what he said. I had every right to be angry. If you'd had a week like mine, you'd have been angry too. 
My problems began on Sunday night. I was still living in Brazil and was taking some relatives to southern Brazil to see the Iguacu Falls. I, a canceled flight left us stranded several hours in the Sao Paulo airport. No warning, no explanation, just a notification as we were landing that the plane we were going to catch was going nowhere. If we wanted, we could wait two hours and catch another one. If we wanted. When we got to our hotel, it was raining. It rained until the day we left. Determined to record the falls, I carried video cameras for one mile through a rainstorm. I don't mean a drizzle or a sprinkle or a shower. I mean a blinding downpour. And when I reached the falls, I realized I had left the camera turned on for the previous hour and a half, filming the inside of the camera bag and had run down the battery. When I got back to the hotel, I realized that the rain had ruined the camera. How much ruined? $300 worth of ruin. That was Wednesday, and the week wasn't over yet. When I got back to Rio, I found out that Dendelin, my wife, had told her family we were going to spend the upcoming Christmas with them. I had already told my family we were going to spend the holidays with them. Thursday was the clincher. Dendelin called me at home. Our car had broken down. The car that the car dealer promised was in great shape. The car that the car dealer promised was worth the extra money. The car that the car dealer had sworn was trouble-free. It broke down, downtown, again, on my day off. I walked to the shopping center. I spoke to no one. No one dared to speak to me. I sat in the car and tried to start it. No luck. When I turned the key in the ignition, all I could hear were the promises of the car dealer and the jingle of the mechanic's cash register. I spent an hour tinkering with a broken-down car in a parking lot. Finally, I called the mechanic. The tow truck was busy. Could I wait a few minutes? In Brazil, the word minutes can be better translated years. So I waited. And I waited. And I waited. My children grew up and had children of their own. And still, I was waiting. <laughs> Finally, as the sun was setting, the truck appeared. Put it in neutral, I was instructed. As I climbed in the car, I thought, might as well try it one more time. I turned the key in the ignition, and guess what? You got it. It started. That should be great news. And it was, until I saw the driver of the tow truck in no hurry to leave. He wanted to be paid. For what? I implored. Was it my fault your car started, he said. It's a good thing I didn't know how to say smart aleck in Portuguese. So I paid him for watching, for I paid him to watch me start my car. I immediately drove the car to the mechanic. And as I drove, two devils came and perched on my shoulder. The fact that I couldn't see them didn't make them any less real. I could hear them. And they were speaking the language of the liar. One was anger. If there was anything I wasn't mad at by this point, he took care of that. My list of offenses was long and ugly. The other was self-pity. Boy, did he find a listening ear with me. Not only had I had a bad week, he reminded me and I'd a, I had been plagued with a bad life. Born with a handicap of freckles and red hair, always too slow for track, never elected most likely to succeed, and now a missionary suffering on foreign soil. Anger in one ear, self-pity in the other. If I hadn't seen him, who knows what I would have done.
He didn't look like an angel. In fact, he looked like anything but an angel. But I know he was an angel. For only angels bring this type of message. He knocked on my car window. Trocadinho, senor. Do you have any spare change, sir? He was at most nine years old, shirtless, barefooted, dirty. So dirty I couldn't tell if he was wearing shorts or not. His hair was matted, his skin was crusty. I rolled down the window. The voices on my shoulders became silent. What's your name, I asked. Jose? I looked over at the sidewalk. Two other street orphans were walking towards the cars behind me. They were naked except for the ragged gym shorts they were wearing. Are they your brothers, I asked. No, just friends, he said. Have you collected much money today, I asked him. He opened a dirty hand full of coins, enough money perhaps maybe for a soft drink. I reached in my wallet, pulled out the equivalent of a dollar. His eyes brightened. Mine watered. The light changed and the cars behind me honked. As I drove away, I saw him running to tell his friends what he had received. The voices on my shoulder didn't dare say a word. Nor did I. So the three of us drove on in shameful silence. I figured I had said enough. And God had heard every word. What if God had responded in my grumblings? What if he'd heeded my complaints? He could have. He could have answered my carelessly mumbled prayers. And had he chosen to, if he had chosen to do so, a prototype of the result had just appeared at my window. Don't want to mess with the airlines, Max? This boy doesn't have that problem. Frustrated with your video camera? That's one headache this boy doesn't have. He may have to worry about tonight's dinner, but he doesn't have to worry about video cameras. And family? I'm sure this orphan would gladly take either of the families you think you're too busy to appreciate. And cars? Yes, they are a hassle, aren't they? You should try this boy's mode of transportation. Bare feet. Lucado said God sent the boy with a message, and the point the boy made was razor sharp. Max, you cry over spilled champagne. Your complaints are not over the lack of necessities, but the abundance of benefits. Your belly ache, you bellyache over the frills, not the basics, over benefits, not essentials. The source of your problems is your blessings. Lucero said, Jose gave me a lot for my dollar that day. He gave me a lesson on gratitude. 
Gratitude. Where a person becomes more aware of what they have than of what they don't. And people, what we have is what the rest of the world without Jesus is looking for. A relationship with a God who is good, whose love endures forever, and who's faithful to all generations. A God who loves us so much he gave his son to die in our place while we were still sinners. Yeah, a lot of ugly, bad, disappointing, heartbreaking stuff happens in our life every day. It's the plight of living in a fallen world. But it helps to know you have a good God who's using it for a good purpose. And it helps to know that after everything he's done, as Paul said, how's he not also going to give us all things? You know, this Thursday, Lord willing, we're going to be celebrating a holiday rooted in Thanksgiving. It wasn't, as the world tries to tell us, Thanksgiving to a group of Indians. It was a Thanksgiving to God. Do you remember when the pilgrims came to America in 1620? They left Leyden, Holland, not because of religious persecution. They had that in Holland. They, I mean, they had freedom in Holland. They came in their own words because they felt led of God to be pilgrims to bring the good news to the continent. They were hoping to have a new place where they could spread God's word and live according to the dictates of their conscience. I've read a lot of the original words of the pilgrims from their writings, and I can tell you it was clear they understood their mission. It wasn't an easy trip. 66 days. Can you imagine 102 people crammed in a Mayflower boat with a downstairs area where they stayed was about the size of a volleyball court. If you've ever been on the exact reproduced model of the Mayflower, you, you can't imagine how 20 people stayed down there, much less all of them. Only one little boy died on that journey over, 66 days. But because they were delayed for a wide variety of reasons I don't have time to get into, they arrived in God's providence in November. It was winter. That first winter, half the pilgrims died. In fact, Governor, Bra Governor Bradford once wrote that there was not a single family who had not lost a loved one that first winter. They spent most of their time trying to figure out how to bury these bodies and how to survive. When the food ran out, the first summer of 1621 didn't go well. And through some miraculous providence of God, through some Indians that he brought to them to help them in that time, they learned how to plant. And to make a long story short, Massasoit, the head of that tribe, began to strike up a covenant with them and they planted together and hunted together and I'm leaving out tons of details but the bottom line by the summer of 1623 it was an abundance of food after years of hardship death and deprivation in the autumn of 1623 the crops were abundant they had peace with the local tribes and Governor Bradford issued a declaration it's reported that he said this Inasmuch as the Great Father has given us this year an abundant harvest of Indian corn, wheat, beans, squashes, and garden vegetables, and has made the forests to abound with game and the sea with fish and clams, and inasmuch as he has protected us from the ravages of the savages, has spared us from pestilence and disease, 
has granted us freedom to worship God according to the dictates of our own conscience. Now I, your magistrate, do proclaim that all ye pilgrims, with your wives and little ones, do gather at ye meeting house on ye hill between the hours of 9 and 12 in the daytime on Thursday, November ye 29, of the year of our Lord, 1,623. And the third year since ye pilgrims landed on ye pilgrim rock, there to listen to ye pastor and render thanksgiving to your almighty God for all his blessings. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. You know, in the words of William Law, an 18th century Church of England priest whose writings helped fuel an evangelical movement in his day, he wrote a little book once called His Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. He said, would you know who the greatest saint in the world is? It's not he who prays the most or fasts the most. It's not he who gives the most alms or is most imminent for temperance, chastity, or justice. It's he who is always faithful to God, who wills everything that God willeth, who receives everything as an instance of God's goodness and has a heart always ready to praise God for it. Give thanks in all circumstances because of who God is, because of all God has done. This is God's will for us in Christ Jesus. Father, I can't think of a better passage to prepare our hearts for this coming holiday, where by your grace and by your will, we may gather around a table with loved ones or friends, or we may gather in front of a simple meal at a restaurant all alone. We may look at the world around us and how it's all falling apart, we may see the circumstances in our lives as bitter and hard. We may feel at times even that you no longer listen or wonder even if you're there. This may be a thanksgiving of abundant blessings like 1623. Or it may be a thanksgiving of dire and difficult circumstances. But whatever it is, God, You've reminded us we need, we must learn to give you thanks in these things as an expression of the faith that we have that you are a good God whose love endures forever and who's faithful to all generations. That out of that love you are willing to pay the greatest sacrifice in order for those who are sinning against you and lost in death could be saved and given life, that we might be able to sing your praise and offer you the thanks that you alone deserve. So God, today I thank you for this week of focusing on Thanksgiving, something that is really more than a holiday. It is a way of life according to the will of God. 
Thank you that we never have to pretend that everything's okay. We don't have to pretend that we like it. We don't have to pretend that we get hurt or angry or disappointed. We don't have to pretend anything. We simply have to, in those moments, take all of that and remember that just like the church at Thessalonica, who is going through severe trial, that we can rejoice always. We can pray continually. And we can give thanks in all circumstances. And somehow, God, when we do that, it pleases you and it can bring us joy. Thank you for being the God you are. Thank you for all that you have done. And as we come to the table today, help us to recognize all over again why this is called the table of thanksgiving. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.